Welcome, everybody, to the Sacramental Charismatic. I am your host, Luke Gerdy, and we are in season two. Uh, we are in episode 13 today, um, and just excited about having a conversation with a good friend of mine today. Uh, before we do that, though, I just wanted to mention um, that, again, this, this podcast is oftentimes a conversation that's kind of focused around um, the intersection of ecclesiology and pneumatology and missiology and sacramentality. But as I said in the first season, I also get to talk about whatever I want because I am the one who's paying for the hosting. <laughs> so I feel like that is a legitimate uh, option. But uh, anyway, I'm really excited about this season. Uh, I have a bunch of really great uh, guests coming up in the next couple of weeks uh, and next uh, a couple of episodes. I'm actually going to have a bunch of different Anglican uh, theologians and pastors, priests uh, on, and they're going to be talking about, I guess, their perspective on sacramental theology. A number of them are charismatic uh, in their orientation as well. In fact, I'm going to have a bishop, an Anglican bishop on. Um, so just going to really enjoy that conversation and we can figure out what those Episcopalian folks are up to. Uh, in the sacramental charismatic world. Uh, but today on this episode, I am pleased to have a good friend of mine who I have been a huge fan of his work and um, have followed him on Twitter. And I like to troll him on Twitter. That's actually probably my favorite thing to do. But I am super happy to have uh, Dr. Ben Blackwell. Doctor, welcome. Yeah. Hey, it's great to great to be here. So it's a uh... I'm a longtime listener, first time caller guy here, so it's good yeah. to, uh, to actually be on and uh, participate, you know, not just lurk myself. So yeah, that's a, that's kind of like a good way to describe our relationship is that we're always working <laughs> on each other's uh, work and, <laughs> and interacting, uh, you know. And actually, Ben, um, so you and I met. I want to say it was probably five, maybe four or five years ago, maybe six years ago, somewhere around there. Yeah, I think it was four. I can't remember. I actually came down with this crazy brain condition literally about two weeks after I went to the SVS that we met at. So, oh no, uh, that might have been. Uh, yeah, it was a weird thing about it. Yeah. Anyhow, it, it uh, fortunately uh, did no more than uh, give me a cause to re use reading glasses now. So that's uh, ah. all over. But um, anyhow, I having I was riding back with Bert Wagner. Uh, we were, it was at Yale and uh, he, he and I are at different uh, airports. And so we, we made it back to his uh, flight, but I ended up missing mine because of New York traffic. And um, uh, anyhow, spent the night at JFK on the floor uh, for a part of the time. And so that that's how I remember that whole experience. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. No, that was good. And I think we actually did get introduced because of my friend Thomas Lyons, who I think was is a friend of yours, uh, and he's a newly minted PhD from Asbury. Yeah, yeah. Biblical studies. So, uh, but yeah, and and so it, we've been, you know, kind of I guess long distance friends. You are in Houston, and you are a professor at uh, in Houston at a at a seminary slash university there, correct? Yeah, that's right. So uh, I direct Houston Theological Seminary, which is uh, just our, our graduate theological programs at Houston Baptist University. So it's a it's a good place. It's a multi denominational seminary. So in that sense, it um, you know it's not limited to Baptists. Hence uh, why I'm there. I'm kosher as a vineyard person there, but uh, yeah, a lot of. Uh, 
random folk, you know, different traditions. So it's a good, been a healthy, a good place for to land. Yeah. And, and so I um, have been really excited about having you on the podcast because uh, this last, I guess the last uh, semester or course or whatever, I've uh, been teaching a, a course for a university in New Zealand, uh, Vineyard College, uh, which is a, um, I guess it's a, uh, you know, just an undergrad school that is for pastors and lay leaders who are wanting to become, you know, better theologians and better, um, you know, uh, understand the Bible. And so I, um, when I was putting together my course, which is a kind of an introduction to, uh, to theology, I was looking for a textbook and, um, you know, I skirted a little bit around Michael Bird's evangelical theology because it's got comedic, uh, comedic parts of it and <laughs> comedy all over it, and and yeah, I love yeah. his work, but it was you know a little too too much I think for probably most undergrads, uh, and so I was fortunate enough to get a copy of this book right here, which is called Engaging Theology, which you are a co-author on, and the subtitle is A Biblical Historical and Practical Introduction, and so I am. Uh, just at the end of teaching this course, and I've used this book alongside um, Michael Bird's shorter uh, book, What Christians Ought to Believe, kind yeah. of a, a secondary reading. And I just got to tell you, the book has been fantastic to work through, uh, you know, in providing lectures, kind of springboarding off of your your work. And so I'm really excited to talk to you about that. I'd love to, to kind of like maybe dive into that, um, you know, like what what caused you to write this book or to think that this would be a helpful book? Because there's obviously a lot of books on theology out there, um, some accessible, some not accessible. Um, how did it come, apart, come about? And then who's your target audience? Yeah, yeah. That, uh, well, the whole reason that we we're able to write this book is because Mike Bird only had a really short one and a really long one. And so Zondervan still needed somewhere in between. And so, uh, he, you know, we barely s- snuck in before. He missed his opportunity because <laughs> I'm sure he's got a medium-sized version on the way. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, but in that sense, uh, we we teach an intro to theology uh, class here that is, we use across campus, so at, at HBU, and um, so a lot of evangelical schools have an intro to Old New Testament as their two kind of theology classes or Bible classes, and so we have an intro to the Bible and intro to theology. And mm, great. One of the things that is unique about our setting is that we're uh, HBU is the most ethnically diverse Protestant campus in the U.S. So um, what that means then is we don't have all Baptist students by any means. In fact, uh, we have a good number of students that are active participants of other faith traditions like Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist kind of things. And so not only are we doing Catholic Protestant discussions, we're doing Christian and other faith traditions and so one of the things that really struck us is that we needed to write a theology that was better at uh, not just for insiders, so people that had been raised in the church and knew the Bible really well, and so this was just going to be the capstone of what they already knew. It you know it turns out that I mean for our setting that just wasn't a, a good fit. And um, the other thing that came came with that though is that. It turns out it's not that the just the non-Christians that don't know the Bible anymore. More and more evangelicals just don't come from Bible teaching traditions. And so in that sense, like uh, so many high school students that have been raised all their lives in, in Christian settings just don't know the Bible that well. And so for us then, as, as we're teaching theology, we wanted to do a theology book that had a really strong biblical foundation that 
that led into the story of theology, but also helped bring together some of those conversations and um, mm. and help just and so it, the onboarding for Christians and non-Christians seemed actually to work uh, in a lot the same way. Wow, wow, wow! So that kind of that course essentially caused you to to kind of move into the realm of writing a book that would be perfect for um, the textbook. And then also um, kind of is a, is it, would it be accurate to assume that the book is really kind of outworking of what you discovered in the midst of doing all these courses with different students that you found out there were a lot of questions being asked that a lot of systematic theologies kind of ignore or just don't even talk about. Yeah, I mean, so the original uh, proposed title that when I came up with a book in the first place was Orthodoxy, Who Cares? <laughs> and in this sense, like as I was teaching theology, so not just to the intro to gen ed population, but also to ministry majors. And, you know, I did patristic theology as, and um, New Testament as my PhD. And so like I geek out on Christological controversies and the councils and all that kind of stuff. And, and as I would teach Trinitarianism or the hypostatic union and all these kind of things, um, it, it, it became clear to me that the evangelical students even, or others were just like, you could just as well argue that Jesus needed six fingers to save us as he had to be kind of a divine and human. You know, it's just some prop theological proposition that's disconnected from reality. So it doesn't fit with kind of the story of the Bible. It doesn't seem to fit with like their practical, relevant experience. And so one of the things that kind of drove us, right, and that's why orthodoxy, who cares? You know, it's like it's just a bunch of set of ideas. And uh, for us then, like, as we wanted to communicate this, it was without being drawn into like pragmatism and just in that sense, but we really wanted to show, well, how is theology relevant so that it connects to the Bible, it connects to the history of the church, and it connects to the practicalities of life. And so, um, hence, you know, our, the way that we approached it. And so that it is uh, one of the things I think that when you read systematic theology, um, a lot of times they reference the Bible, but they don't really engage the narrative of the Bible in that sense. And then also um, on the back end, the funny thing is to me, it's like um, you don't really get that much practical stuff. Uh, it's supposed to be communicating kind of biblical truth to a contemporary setting, you know, mm -hmm. but it, it usually just stays in the world of ideas. And so one of the main things that was driving us uh, in this is that, no, theology is comes out of the church, we've separated it from the church, and so from the life, the spiritual life. And so it was important to us that, you know, 15 or 20 percent of every chapter has real connection to the, the practice of theology, you know, yeah. formation. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, just as I've got a copy, uh, I want to let you know, I bought it on my Logos account, and I also have a hard copy. So that's how, <laughs> how Christian I am. Uh, but you know, when you're, when you're looking at, you know, some of your chapters here, um, it, you know, it really is a great introduction to like your, your general theological, um, you know, questions, but you know, um, you start with theological method, which as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, I'm in, this is, this is, this is my, uh, this is a great textbook, but, but you have these chapters and I'm just going to use the Trinity as an example. So you start out with, um, you know, like your basic you know, introduction, and then you have the, the kind of the history of the development of 
the, the doctrine of the Trinity as well as some of the questions and controversies that came up. But what I really love about it is what you just were talking about, the um, practical aspect of it, because you have a whole thing about the contemporary um, issues. And then you have a section um, on like how other different traditions, um, both, both maybe um, what I call heterodox Christianity, you know, like Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, and then, you know, um, different religions altogether, like Islam or um, Hinduism, and how, how these truths, um, I guess, are, are thought of in those. And I thought that was really helpful. And I, I, I have found um, it's, it's like easy to um, have conversations around some of those topics with people outside of the Christian faith because of the way that you've written. Like I've actually used some of those as on ramps to talk to people who are like Hindu, um, for example, you know, and, and um, so was that like requested by the publisher or is that again, just the outworking of, of teaching students who are all over the map? Yeah, I think it was just being here in Houston. Um, you know, part of it was living, you know, I lived in uh, Durham, England for a couple uh, five years. And so had that experience of like, uh, encountering Christianity that was wider than just my evangelical bubble. And, um, you know, and, and in seminary, I was really, uh, you know, blessed by kind of, even though I went to DTS, which I know you, uh, you, you're a little skeptical about. <laughs> yeah. theology. Do you like how I always throw shade on dispensation? <laughs> I can, I know I'm sorry. Yeah. I apologize. You know, I'm not dispensational anymore, but I, I did. It was introduced to Catholic theology and Eastern Orthodox theology there. And so when I went to uh, Durham, yeah, I had the great pleasure to work with N.T. Wright for a couple of years. And so one of the main things that uh, was really of interest to me and in that was um, he, his daily commitment to prayer. And so using the, uh, the an updated version of the Book of Common Prayer called Daily Word Up or Common Worship. And um so I would go out, I would always schedule my meetings in the morning. So, because he would invite me to come and, and do the, the prayer service with him and his chaplain uh, beforehand. And so it was, I was informed in this way of life and theology uh, wider than my own. And in that sense, though, it's like I'd been exposed to this greater circle of Christian theology, but then I come to Houston and 25% and, uh, of the working population here are foreign born. So that means you know, somewhere outside the U.S., right? Of course, a lot from Latin America, but uh, mm -hmm. Nigeria, the Middle East, um, uh, China, India, Pakistan. I mean, you get everybody here. And of course, our student population reflects that as well. And so had these experiences with Muslim students or Mormon students or whoever. And so it was like, gosh, I'm inadequate to have even a basic conversation there. And so the goal here was to at least provide in a lot of ways, a dispassionate, you know, so sometimes you get, I'm just going to throw stones at those other people, particularly Mormonism is a good example here. Mm -hmm. um, you know, of course, I don't agree with so much Mormonism, but there are other things that are just kind of bog standard Christian stuff that they're exactly the same as kind of other evangelical yeah. Christians. Yeah, it almost seems like it's hard to find critique on some things because it's like, eh, they kind of agree the same thing we do. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. penal substitution. They're pretty yeah. down the line with penal substitution, you know, and of course, different people have different. Uh, yeah. Every Calvinist is like, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, you know, and so it's like, how do you, can you have like a, like I said, dispassionate to where you say like, actually they get some things right, but then here are other things yeah. that are fundamentally different without it being name calling or just... Mm. Uh, ad hominem kind of stuff and the same thing with other religions too and and part of that you know helps when you know that people 
of these traditions are going to read this. You know, it's not just insiders reading it. And that's why you can use, sometimes get away with the name calling kind of stuff. Um, and so it, it forced us to be as accurate as we could. And we're not experts on all these other traditions either. So I'm sure we probably get many things wrong or, you know, um, in that sense. And there's so much diversity in Islam or, you know, yeah, yeah. tradition that we don't get. But, you know, at least in some place, just to, as a conversation starter, where, where does just some of these basic similarities and differences? How did you do that? Uh, you know, how did you... Um, you know, I guess when it comes to writing these chapters these, or these sections of the chapters interacting with other faith traditions and not being specialists in global religions or, you know, world, you know, world religions, uh, was that just you read books or did you actually have conversations with different people who are in that camp? Yeah, a little bit of both. Uh, so I taught uh, I've taught world religions here, and so have done. Oh, so you are an expert. Okay, of, my bad. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't realize you are an expert. Expert. <laughs> oh well, no, no, I, I'm the furthest thing from an expert. Uh, I'm just kidding. Least, you know, as you go to write, you're like, oh gosh, well, I, I realized what I'd been teaching in that class was not that accurate. <laughs> you know, because again, it forces you to that extra level of detail. Uh, Randy Hatton, who I teach with, is uh, much better on world Christianity than I am as well, too. And so that helps uh, balance out. But then, like I said, there, you know, I uh, had a Mormon student that I've had a really good relationship with. In fact, uh, he uh, and his church invited me to come talk to a group, you know, about the similarities and differences of kind of mm-hmm. Orthodox Christianity and Mormonism. And it's wow. Those interchanges that helped refine and 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 lead me through, and so of course, um, you know, so it's a little bit of all of the above. Wow, that's so you were actually able to go and have some interaction. I, I found that. Um, so I grew up probably. You know, was it was it uh, Martin something Kingdom of Cults? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That was our guy, right? That was our. our yeah, guy. Yeah. And I, uh, and, and so there's a lot of things in it that I found fascinating, you know, it's kind of overwhelming cause it's just really footnotes of <laughs> random things that are wrong with everybody. But, um, but I remember, uh, I was on a plane one time and I am the kind of guy that when I sit down and this is actually how I know I'm not an evangelist I sit <laughs> on, a, on a plane and I'm like praying that no one will sit by me. And I put my head around my nose and I sat down and, um, and I was sitting there and this guy sat down and, you know, just like, even with my headphones on, started trying to talk to me. And I, you know, obviously was, you know, I am a Christian. So I took him out, started talking a little bit and, uh, and it became really clear that he was definitely trying to evangelize me. And I had this suspicion that he was, uh, probably a Mormon. Um, and I think it might've been because we were flying out of Salt Lake city, but, okay. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, but a- after we started talking, you know, we actually had this really great conversation and, and, you know, he, he uh, found out I was a pastor and we had, you know, um, we talked about the Bible a bit. And it was interesting because on one hand, he, he was just really um, happy to know that I had faith and that I believed in Jesus. And he said something along the lines of, well, you know, the important thing, even though we have some differences in our denominations, and that was an interesting concept because some people would say, we well, are not a denomination, you're a cult. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and I definitely have some concerns about some of the theology, but he said, the important thing is that we both believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And when he said that, I was like, huh, you know, I, and uh, like, that's a little bit different than what I was always told that they believe, you know, and, and, uh, mm-hmm. and I think 
if there's I, I know that there's been a, a host of evangelical scholars that have been having meetings at BYU with their mm-hmm. their theologians, and I know that there's been a lot of ecumenical dialogue, which would be fascinating to to know more about. But I, I think that's like what you're talking about having conversations seems really healthy and really helpful to not only understand where they're coming from, but for us to understand where we're at. And that's what I really love about your book. Yeah. I think that's the whole thing is like, you can so easily feel like you're divided arguing with other Christians. So like when I grew up, I remember uh, when I was go off to college, I went back to visit my hometown high school and, and bumped into this friend that I didn't remember being a Christian or not or whatever, but we got to talk and turned out he's church of Christ. Oh, okay. Of so course we had this big, yeah. <laughs> yeah. my mom became a Christian in a church of Christ and that was my first church experience. Okay. Okay. So, but of course, uh, and this is after I had gone off and gotten a Baptist, uh, undergraduate degree in religion. And so what did we do? We had this, uh, argument about, can you lose your salvation? You know, and it, uh, uh, it, two, two things there, right. You begin to major on the minors, I think is what happens when you only have insider conversations. And so when you put it in the wider context, it's like some of the things that seem like, why in the world would Christians believe this? It's like when you see the, the world universe that of other religions or other what we call uh, Christian um, related traditions like Mormonism, mm-hmm. you realize it's like, OK, now this makes sense why we would hold this position. And so having that external view helps there. But then also in that sense of one of the things that drives the book is this uh, coming back to the Nicene Creed as what Mm -hmm. unifies all Christians. So whether you're Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, we have this common faith tradition that unites all of us. So in that same way, it goes beyond just Jesus dying on the cross. But uh, at the same time, that there is some coherent narrative to Christian theology, but even that it it comes straight out of the Bible. And so when we Mm -hmm. talk theology or the Nicene Creed, it's not some made-up thing that showed up 300 years later. It's out of the baptismal confession that arose very early, you know, called the rule of faith, but it, it's it, it's basically the spark notes of the Bible, right? That yeah, yeah. God who created the world, Jesus comes to save us, and we have this hope for the future because the Spirit is the one who will bring life and resurrection. And so, yeah. uh, you know, it helps. It just grounds people in the big picture instead of getting lost in these details of why are you know, we fighting about these other issues. And it's not that they're unimportant. We actually have a whole section of the book about these debates between traditions. Yeah. But we make sure those are secondary and that we focus on the big picture, the, the unifying aspects first before we get to the debates. Yeah. And that's, that's why I've loved about your book, because I've tried to... Um, you know, I think I have these like competing, um, maybe philosophies or values, uh, of ministry and teaching, but it's like, I really want people to understand that there's a lot of different perspectives out there. You know, like when it comes Mm -hmm. to eschatology, there's two really that matter in my world, historic premillennials. The right one and the wrong one. (laughs) Yeah. No, 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 no. I'm okay with those two. Uh, you know, but, but, you know, but at the same time too, like I want people to understand that there's a, there's a variety of different perspectives on eschatology, Wow. What I, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, needing to, I guess, uh, wanting people to, 
I, 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 the philosophy I have is that I want people to understand there's a lot of different perspectives out there. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, too, that there is a centrality. Um, you know, it's like I like I'll always use the, you know, primary and then there's secondary and then there's like third level, um, you know. So there's some things that you're going to die for. And then there's certain things you would take a paper cut for, you know, just yeah. like I don't yeah. care, you know. Uh, but when it comes to the Apostles Creed and the Nicene Creed, um, you know, so obviously the Apostles Creed is pretty general. I mean, it might be mere Christianity, but in your understanding, like would would Mormons be able to affirm the Apostles Creed? Uh, yeah, I think the Apostles Creed probably even more so. Uh, I mean, even the Nicene Creed. This came up when we were meeting with uh, talking with the that when I went to that Mormon church yeah. and was talking with their leaders there. The big difference is not. Uh, it has to do with the homoousios language. Yeah, or yeah. The, the same nature. Um, and, and in that sense, actually, I think they were comfortable affirming the Nicene Creed. What, what's implied in the in the Nicene Creed is that when Christ is of the same nature as the Father, right? He's uh, although I guess they may not. Uh, well, I don't know the begotten created language. The deal is, is when we say that Christ, the Son is of the same nature as the Father, we're implicitly saying that they are of a different nature than humanity. Human nature is different than divine nature. Yeah. And of course, with Mormonism, um, God the Father, ha- we are literally the spirit children of Heavenly Father. And so in that sense, we have the exact same nature as the Father and the Son. And so uh, that's where so much of Mormonism is different. It's not so much on the arc of kind of uh, the economy of salvation. It's on the kind of the, the bookends uh, yeah. history to where we, you know, one way or the other. Um, yeah, it's like the it's like the anthropology and the eschatology where they kind of meet, which you uh, you know you actually have written a dissertation on, right? I mean, that's like that's yeah, like, the whole right? idea of uh, deification or theosis, you know, and this yeah, is yeah. Mormonism would be different, right? Orthodox yeah. Christology or uh, you know theology, theosis, is always, when it says that we become gods, like Athanasius used that, or Sylla of Alexandria, I mean, all, all the Eastern Orthodox Greek fathers mm-hmm. use that language. They're always using it as a metaphor. We become like God because God's nature is so different, so other than us. Um, so even like Gregory Anissa says, even in the afterlife, when we you know become perfect, we're always going to be growing because we're finite only god is infinite and so we can never become god in that sense whereas in mormonism literally we can we we share the name same nature already the only difference is is that uh, god heavenly father and the jesus are just more advanced in their spirituality Mm. sanctification than we are and so as we progress in that sanctification to be like them we would have the same kind of power and authority that they have Um, gotcha so that's that's kind of like w- was um, probably pretty helpful then to have some of that in your back pocket. <laughs> I actually wrote a PhD on uh, the subject we're talking about. So that's yeah, cool. yeah. So that's uh, so I was ignorant of Mormonism until of late. But I mean, it, it, those you know a lot of these questions are show up in so many different traditions about who, yeah, what's yeah, the nature yeah. of God, what's the nature of humanity, and how do these two interact? I mean, that so yeah. much that's 
the basis of religion, you know? So, yeah, I, and I think, you know, probably even more so right now, but there are virtually thousands of pastors all over um, the U S right now who are wondering if the people that are in their churches are even Christians and some <laughs> you know, uh, based off of theology. Right. I mean, it's, I'm surprised at how many times you read these polls and I'm not a huge fan of some polls because, you know, I did enough studying on empirical data and statistics and research yeah. <laughs> are destined to fail in the beginning. But, uh, you know, when you, when you hear some of the stats about what Christians, you know, quote unquote, evangelical Christians believe, it just doesn't fit with even basic apostolic, um, you know, uh, apostles creed or the Nicene creed. It's, it's pretty con concerning. Um, you know, you're talking about, um, well, this is one thing that some of my students actually really appreciated about the course that I've been doing is, they, is how they've um, and I and I had to say, well, I think it's a lot based off of because of your your guys's book, but they what they've seen is there's a coherence and a consistency and a and how all these different theological topics like intermingle, you know. Okay. I'm I'm on this I'm on the the two sessions I'm on right now the last two parts of this course uh, i'm on eschatology and and how eschatology you know connects to sanctification and and salvation in general and it's also connected to the kingdom theology right it's like it's kind of interesting because like we're really talking more about the kingdom which i would have wanted it back in session one and two but we we have to kind of wait until sessions 19 and 20 because um you know it's like all of the eschatology stuff really is is best unpacked sometimes when we think about the presence of the future and the now and the not yet and all that type of stuff. Um, so how do you think, um, I guess, how do you, how have you made sure to um, adequately um, have consistency across the map and to inter interweave these things? Is that because of your own, your own values or, you know, cause it seems to be like there's a philosophical commitment to having some consistency in, in, argument, you know, and what would you say to the folks who are now leaning more into a post-modernity, um, you know, kind of thing that narrative, and, and I'm not, and I'm really, I'm really, I don't want to sound yeah. like I'm throwing shade, just, you know, more of a narrative approach or, or maybe like, yeah, that's a Western Renaissance, you know, um, type of way of looking at the world, you know, and we need to like, you know, get rid of that because I think you and I both being in vineyards, we've, we would lean into probably a both and rather than an either or in a lot of different areas. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, as, as a short, you like to help describe the book, maybe for people is that I often say it's the, uh, the Bible project meets systematic theology in the mm -hmm. sense that we believe there's one coherent story that holds together the whole Bible. And of course they say it leads to Jesus and, um, you know, I would say, you know, Trinitarian, you know, Jesus as represents God's uh, work in the yeah. world through the spirit as well. Uh, but in that sense, it's trying to grasp that core central message, uh, because I think if you get that central story that over girds or unites the, the biblical narrative, it gives some coherence there. And so in that sense, uh, we were talking earlier about this, about the nature of theology and primary and secondary and one of the things that I think is a little bit more in that um, is kind of the centered set versus the bounded set kind of model yeah. of theology. And so uh, it, it is, we have a kind of a postmodern approach in that sense, because it is more centered set. Like we're going to agree about the Trinity is necessary, whereas your view of the millennial kingdom is yeah. not as important, although there is, a, you know, one right. Do all your, do all your <laughs> DTS professors know <laughs> right now that you just said that? 
because uh, that's questionable. If you're yeah, no, the, well, uh, probably one of my most influential professors got fired for making too many people reformed in there. Uh, oh no! So he uh, is uh, outside of that fold now. So that's probably gotcha. uh, without you know probably why I strayed as far as I did. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's funny. But in that sense, it's a centered set to where so there are some things. So it's not fully postmodern because it's like there there are some things that we're going to go to the mat over. You know, in fact, these are the things that that we think all Christians should go to the mat over mm-hmm. because these are what Christians have uh, you know have affirmed as the primary issues. But then also that willingness to say, hey. There's good reason why people baptize infants and others only baptize adults, you know. And so it's not yeah. like this is um, unrelated, but, you know, it fits in that story. And so, you know, one of the things you're talking about, the coherence of it all is I, I do think like once I became work, started working with Tom Wright, but even a step further and took that kind of coherent model, the coherence or mm-hmm. unified story model that Wright works with. And then link that with charismatic theology, it, like everything fits because even Wright's model is great, but so much of the exorcisms and the healings and all that kind of stuff yeah. are affirmed. I mean, it's not, he's going to deny that, but it doesn't yeah. have kind of, it doesn't make sense of like what it seems to be so central to yeah, yeah. ministry. And it's like, if you can't really incorporate what Jesus says is central to his ministry, uh, in a in a visceral way, not just an academic uh, firm that it happened way. It's like once you buy that, then the whole thing seems to take on even a stronger. Um, yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think that's true. You know, I know that in certain circles, like you know, NT Wright is either the guy that everybody loves or the guy that you know. I think you you have to at least you know you can't be too critical of, um, <laughs> you know what I mean. You know what I mean. People yeah, that yeah, yeah. anything because he's just such a great scholar. But yeah, it's it's interesting. My observation, and I love N.T. Wright, um, you know, in a lot of a lot of different areas. But it seems like his high Anglicanism sometimes gets in the way of of the exegesis, and then not only the exegesis, but the like the application of what that text actually means for us today. And I think that's true mm-hmm. about all the all the charismatic stuff because man. It sure seems like Jesus, especially in the Luke, you know, Luke's, uh, I think in, in Luke and anything, right, whether it's Luke or Acts, it seems like um, the power stuff, you know, the new ontological power encounter, yeah. signs and wonders part seems to be like a pretty big thing for Luke. Like, he, <laughs> not just, you know, I mean, it's like all over the place, but it just doesn't fit into our world. And that's why I think the, this is where I, I'd be curious, you know, um, someday if I ever had the opportunity to talk to him, it'd be interesting to hear about like the sacramental tradition. What I'm gathering is that charismatic theology is the perfect on-ramp into sacramental, the sacramental world, because I think most of the time charismatics are very okay with the idea of mystery in some sense. You know, we mm-hmm. also bought into a lot of the modernities like need for empirical certainty and whatnot, but, yeah. but we have a grid for that, you know, like the, you know, meeting with the transcendent and having this, this divine mysterious connection, you know, in worship or whatever. But it seems like, um, like the sacramental stuff, uh, which would be influential in some of, um, rights, you know, uh, ecclesiology and, and theology in general might actually, if he was more sacramental, perhaps would lead into being able to account for and, and even think about the practical application of, of the mm-hmm. charismatic stuff, you know, which, you know, again, I'm sure he's aware of the, all the Anglican charismatic folks and new wine and all that stuff too. But um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think in that sense, like this is what, so I had a charismatic experience back when I was in high school. My best friend was Pentecostal. And so um, that's when I first spoke in tongues and really mm-hmm. kind of embraced that as a, as a theological position, but stayed within the Baptist world. And so never really, um, it wasn't a regular practice. Uh, it was kind of a personal practice rather than my communal ecclesial mm-hmm. practice. Um, but one of the things that struck, and so it wasn't until about 10 years ago when I moved to Houston that I joined the Vineyard. And, and by that time, I was a little bit more open and I guess, you know, less insecure about where I'm going to land a job yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Because we're, we're at the Vineyard colleges, right? There's nowhere yeah. to be. <laughs> New Zealand, so, evidently. New Zealand. That's right, that is. Uh, I do teach with Westminster Theological Center in uh, the UK, and they always have a good stream of vineyard folks that come through yeah, there. It's a, a charismatic. Um, it's a really robust and holistic uh, place. Um, mm-hmm. HBU, you know, I think probably hired me in spite of my theology there rather than because of it. But uh, they, they they let me go. So we're, we're big tent evangelicals there. So we've got charismatic. charismatic. <laughs> yeah, you know, Reformed and Arminian and uh, Wesleyan and yeah. uh, all sorts of stripes there. But all that's to say is what it, what I learned or felt as I went into patristic theology, you know, you have this whole idea that the material world can uh, inhabit, you know, spiritual realities inhabit this material world. And of course, in patristic theology, that's like through the cult of saints and, you know, you've got uh, holy uh, objects and things like that. Mm -hmm. But as I started to move more in the charismatic world, personally, it's like, gosh, there's so much of a similar uh, mode. It's just with a different object. So you've got anointing oil or the prayer cloth or whatever, rather than, you know, these holy uh, objects that you have in more sacramental and so it is where I did begin to see that whole bridge between there. Yeah. Uh, that sometimes they look like you've got high church and charismatic is the lowest of the low church. And so they're going to be the furthest away, but it's more of a triangle to where you've got the evangelical and charismatic and then the sacramental. And so there are connections on the sacramental charismatic side that yeah, don't yeah, have yeah. bridge through that evangelical world. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I, I, um, I've seen Pentecostal churches, um, you know, like be really super anything that remotely sounds like it's sacramental or liturgical, you know, like icons or, you know, there's crosses and things like that. But then they'll have, you know, they'll they'll have anointing oil right there or or they'll definitely be all about, you know, um, the communion and, you know, or even um, even the idea of having uh, prayer shawls to throw on people who have passed out. Mm. <laughs> It's like there's all these material matters that they have a value for, but if it sounds too much like it's quote unquote Catholic or, you know, or uh, I guess sacramental, then it's like, no, no, no. But I think that that's been my experience is that the more that we start to ask questions about maybe um, our biases and our our theological biases that are preventing us from seeing other traditions as having something mm-hmm. to, bring to the table, the worse we are. We, we actually were worse off for that, you know, because I think there's a lot of things that, um, in our tradition in the vineyard, I think we've been extremely, we've been benefited quite a bit from liturgical and spiritual formative streams. I think, you know, the sacramental liturgical spiritual formation world, because that has been, I think a huge, um, we've been anemic in, in those areas, not just the vineyard, but I think evangelical charismatic churches in general, you know, we've not been very good at that. 
I, I like I'm I'm um I'm going to someday figure out how I can talk about Dallas Willard without sounding like a uh, like a like a anti Dallas Willard guy because I love <laughs> Dallas Willard. I, I do like and I might have even we might have talked about this before but like I love Dallas Willard stuff but it's ironic to me that there's so many people who love Dallas Willard stuff who don't do um, any of it yeah. <laughs> not, or, or it's like they're not engaged in mission and they're really. Um, like the 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 commitment to local church, it's like no different than people who have gone to parachurch ministries who then become mm. so jaded. They're like, as a pastor, you're like, please don't come to my church. Like, there, it's please <laughs> anywhere else, you know. And yeah, so I, I I just feel like there's the but the the reason why is I think that, and again, it's not Dallas Willard. It's just people who maybe latch on to that that um, emphasis, you know, like that when you think about the knowing, being, and doing, mm. like you if you don't really prioritize all three of those components of human ontology or, or I don't even know how to talk about that, but if you don't really press into all three, it's really easy to, um, to become a Pharisee or to be, you know, uh, unengaged or, or to not have a valid life-giving relationship with Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. that's sustaining. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's, you know, probably why the charismatic sacramental thing has been such of an interest to me, you know, is trying to like balance myself out a little bit. Yeah, and it's I got exposed particularly through well, I guess once I got here to um, Houston to one of International House of Prayer kind of folks, yeah. and particularly their movement towards uh, the a local group called Exodus, um, not Exodus Cry, that's the old one. Elijah Rising is the name of it now, and but it's a human trafficking ministry, and so just the whole idea, the connection between prayer and praise and worship. That do you, we really believe that it's not against flesh and blood that's driving this, but these are spiritual powers. And so that link between um, charismatic theology and like new monastic kind of stuff. Yeah, and yeah. The 24-7 prayer movement, I've gotten to know better through the Westminster Peter, Theological yeah, Center. Yeah, Peter Craig and, and those folks. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and so it has a lot of similar things with IHOP, but it, in that sense of like that there there is this link to this some monastic spirituality that charismatics can inhabit in a, in a unique way and just a very um, interesting bridges there that I never anticipated maybe five or ten years ago. And mm. so it's wow, uh, yeah, it's it's it is kind of interesting how the the more. I mean, I guess it's the more you study, but also the more that you engage with other people, mm-hmm. other different traditions, you realize that, hey, maybe there's something, you know, to be learned here or something valid. Um, you know, so let's let's kind of I'd love to dive into um, a little bit more of your time with N.T. Wright, um, because okay. when I found out, you know, I think the I think it was probably the last time we we were talking, you know, it was like you were you were a research assistant or you did something. Yeah. Rent you right, which you know most evangelicals in the U.S. that are probably under the age of forty-five are like you know frothing at the mouth to know, you know what's he like and things like that. But, you know, I mean, how did you get into um, you know working with NT Wright and and what did you do over the course of that? And then you know maybe if you could, you know, what's something that you really valued for your time from NT Wright? Yeah, that's great. It's uh, my whole academic experience is very Forrest Gump. Um, which is kind of funny because my WTC students, they're all British, you know, they don't know the different American accents well, uh, <laughs> but they do know that I talk slowly. And so my nickname there is Forrest Gump. So, uh, it, uh, but I've had the Forrest Gump experience. So 
in a, a, there are a variety of ways uh, that got me there. Once I started going the academic track, because we were, my wife and I were looking at doing missions in France and uh, mm. for a series of reasons, we decided to step back. And anyhow, a couple of years later, it's like, okay, we're going to go do a PhD. Um, didn't study New Testament, didn't focus on New Testament. So I didn't know kind of a lot of the New Testament debates. Um, so I, uh, friends of mine encouraged me to study with John Barclay, who I'd never heard of. And it turns out he's written one of the now, uh, after I graduated, written one of the most influential books in New Testament over the past 50 years. You know, his yeah. Paul and the Jeff. Yeah, he's like the guy. <laughs> yeah, so like he's the guy. So I didn't even know him from Adam. But friends of mine were like, hey, you should study with him. So I'm like, okay, I don't know whether he's good, bad, or whatever. I mean, of course, they told me to study because he's good. So I'm just going to trust you. I hadn't read anything yeah. of his. And so for, to end up studying with him was, uh, you know, phenomenal, right? Forrest Gump, step number one. Well, so yeah. I get to Durham, and there's this whole movement in Pauline studies called the New Perspective on Paul. So it's it, it was the new perspective back in 1980, right? It's yeah. not new anymore, but <laughs> yeah, when EP or like when EP Sanders was cutting edge, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, all that kind of stuff. Well, guess what? I went there in what 2006 or whatever. It it was like it had never even happened. I I don't know how I got out of seminary. This is one of the few things that DTS I was just like deficient on. I'd never even heard of the new perspective. Wow. And I went to the kind of center because J James Dunn, Jimmy Dunn was teaching there. N.T. Wright was the bishop of Durham. And so it's like going to Rome and not knowing the Catholic Church exists. You know? We're going to come back to this. So I'm just out, of, just out of curiosity, because I do have to ask this question about Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, just in understanding dispensationalism a little bit. Yep. So I like I have been pretty familiar with the um, new uh, the you know new perspective because of being in the reformed world, um, you know being at being at reformed seminaries and then listening to reformed thinkers. That was like all it was. That's like all we talked about in the early two thousands. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, John Piper wrote a book about N.T. Wright without having ever read N.T. Wright or actually engaged N.T. Wright. That's mean, but it's probably true based off of my my, my reading of his book. Um, but you know, um, how, why do you think dispensationalism, um, and, and I know that DTS is really more progressive dispensational now. And so I can't really say, yeah. like, I know that they don't hand out Schofield Bibles at the door. <laughs> I'll admit that. But why, why do you think that, uh, you know, the dispensational progressive dispensational world was like maybe slower, um, to engage it, or maybe just not interested in that? Yeah, so part of it was I studied more historical theology at DTS, the New Testament. So I, I have no doubt because I know Daryl Box there and I have a friend yeah. of mine actually from DTS that ended up at Durham studying uh, um, ancient Second Temple Judaism and all this kind of stuff. Mm. So part of it was is who you ended up studying, you know, happened to have in the mix. Gotcha. Um, but the who I did have tended to focus more on the greco Roman, excuse me, Greco-Roman background of Christianity rather than uh, Second Temple Jewish stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, and you know, for shameless plug here, you know, this is what helped build this series of books. So reading Romans in context, reading Mark in context, reading Revelation in context that I've helped edit because I was just ignorant that that whole world existed. Mm. And so a couple of friends of mine and I helped edit this series to help introduce you know, people to this world. 
Gotcha. And so uh, all the chapters, we were like, look, they've got to be short chapters. No chapters longer than six or seven pages long because mm-hmm. we want people that are non-specialists to be able to appreciate, you know, not only what these texts are, but also how they help us understand the Bible better. Great, great. Of course, the whole new perspective is the idea of Second Temple Judaism. So Judaism, after that Second Temple was rebuilt, after the exile, mm-hmm. And when it was destroyed in AD 70. And so, of course, that's when Christianity arose out of this time period. So, um, and N.T. Wright is, you know, huge in the Second Temple Judaism. Yeah, he's, he's, the, he's the guy. He's the living guy. I mean, there's. Yeah, so, I mean, there's so many others that uh, are, you know, he employs it. Others are kind of more specialist uh, in, in the nuances of aspects because he's more of a New Testament scholar than Second yeah. Temple Judaism. N.T. Wright seems like he hasn't been afraid to um and this was the big this is why i like uh, i actually discovered michael uh, um um michael bird because of a mm. ets article he had written when he had explored the differences between piper and Wright and like you know trying navigating this third way and it, it was um well really convincing to me that uh, anybody who really does take the bible seriously which i want to say i think piper and reform folks want to do and try to do um, you know, but anybody who's concerned about the context of the first century, um, you know, writings would want to take seriously the cultural context that was significantly shaping them. So I think N.T. Wright, you're saying it seems like N.T. Wright has he's not a he's 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 a he, he talks a lot about being a historian <laughs> sometimes and, uh, you know, not, not just a, a theologian. But he really is kind of like this broad guy who's who's doing a biblical theology um, and he's not afraid of employing new perspective. Is that a fair assessment of kind of like what he's doing? Yeah, so that's the a lot of. I mean, he is. Uh, you know, if you, I don't know. There's different ways you can map out New Testament scholarship, but he is more of a kind of a post-conservative is a term that has been applied to him in that sense yeah. of still working in those conservative models of the historical method, and so he really does want to ground new the Christianity within the historical uh, realia of. Yeah particularly Second Temple Judaism, he, he gives a head nod to uh, Greek and Roman issues, but it mostly he sees Christianity as a climax of the covenant, right? Climax of Jewish thinking. Yeah. Well, he's there in Durham and Jimmy Dunn, James Dunn, who's the other kind of, these are the two twin stars of the new perspective are there in Durham. And I never even heard of this place. And then I go start to do a PhD on Paul <laughs> and yeah. like the Vatican and didn't even know the Catholic Church was there. So funnily enough, two years later, I end up working for N.T. Wright. And this is the other Forrest Gump step here. Right. Yeah, how'd you get that job? How'd that yeah, happen? So Wright, you know, has written, what, 40 books or something? I was going to say 400, but if you want to yeah, go. Yeah, however many, right? I think uh, he writes books over the weekend. That's some pretty. Yeah, he, he, he can write crazily fast if it's not uh, intensely, like tons of footnotes kind of stuff. I mean, it, it, it amazes me. But all that's to say is uh, I go in for this interview because he's looking for a research assistant. And uh, we're going along and he's like, oh, and if you read this book, you know, that relates to this issue. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've done that. And go along, read this, this other one. I was like, have you read that? I was like, yeah, yeah. Well, those are the only two books that came up in the interview were the only two books that I'd read. Of his. So I didn't disabuse him of the idea that I knew his, his uh, yeah. Uber, uh, corpus uh, in depth 
Uh, yeah. I barely knew one of the books, even a friend of mine had just given me, uh, it was a book on tape, you know, a CD of, <laughs> That's so funny. if he had not given me that CD, I probably wouldn't have this job. So, or gotten that opportunity. So I, I didn't know much about Wright's theology or approach really when I got hired with him. Um, and, but I, you know, highly impacting. And I think that what, one of the things that carries over is like the dispensational theology of reading the Bible closely. Like they're very, uh, I really am grateful for that intense, you know, reading uh, a close reading of the text, but they, I never could get a good sense of the narrative. Like why does, why do you have all these different turns with these different dispensations? Yeah. Why, why is God doing all that different stuff? Yeah. And it just never made sense. And of course, uh, progressive dispensationalists are better with that, but it's still, I just had this kind of gap there in yeah. my, and like when I engaged right and it, and it fits, he fits so much more closely to patristic ways mm-hmm. in some ways, at least the overarching narrative. Um, I think there are other issues that he's quite different, you know, in approach than they would be. Um, yeah. And that's it's like, he doesn't like allegory and all those kind of things that help undergird, that but um yeah it's funny because his you know surprised by hope i think was probably the first book i i read of his um where i actually like knew who he was you know um and was and it was yeah it was interesting because he obviously was really going after the dispensational um pop but more like the old you know the the pop pop culture folk theology version of you know dispensationalism that we you know hear a lot of um yeah and it, it was it is the hermeneutical lens, right? Like that is the part of dispensationalism for me. That's, that's never really, uh, you know, been convincing, I guess, you know, it's like you're saying, you know, well, why do you interpret this text of scripture as part of this dispensation when it doesn't really seem to match the flow, like the sermon on the Mount as being my, you know, the one I used to always, I would say, Oh God. Cause the scope, like usually <laughs> the notes are like, ah, you know, you have to basically say this has no bearing on the church. I mean, it, it goes as far as to say that, you know, I know again, progressive dispensationalists, you know, that's, it's like low hanging fruit. None of them believe that, you know, but, uh, but yeah. Oh, but, gosh, I had, I had, this is one back when I was a DTS, I knew probably should have known I wasn't cut out or, you know, as centrist to what they were trying to do. I had a professor in acts two, or when he was talking about Acts two, so let me just say the the Greek and Hebrew, the new like the New Testament, Old Testament faculty are really I think nuanced in their reading of Scripture. It's the English Bible people. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so I was in what what they call Bible exposition. Yeah, and this guy was trying to argue that when Peter quotes Joel in Acts two, he's he's like, now this is like what Joel said. It wasn't a fulfillment of what Joel said because we're, that's not the dispensation we're in. Oh, it was like what Joel said. And I was like, I just don't think that's, I mean, it's like, this is, anyhow, yeah. it was one of those things like you're having to just stretch to get there. So, yeah. but I think that's a good point though, about any of us, because it's, it's funny. Um, you know, the more I, I did my MDiv, my emphasis was on new Testament, um, new Testament theology, but it was heavily biblical studies basis. And then, um, you know, later on in life, you know, when, when I went back to grad school and started entering into <clears throat> theology, like I always jokingly say that, you know, theologians like grow up and they do something with the Bible and not, you know, <laughs> uh, but, it, but it, it's interesting because we do, um, I think we all do have to be careful not to read things into the scriptures. You know, I know that's really super, you know, the eisegesis thing is what everybody always, um, you know, talks about, but it really is easy to, 
allow the lens that we have to shape the way we read texts. And that's where I think it, there's a, probably a lot of, um, I'm still feel like I'm growing in that way because I do read the Bible through like a quote unquote sacramental charismatic lens. But I also um, think that maybe because I still have a value for the historical grammatical method of interpretation, like I want to mm-hmm. give that primary place, but then I also um, don't have a problem with Lectio Divina. Like I, I think that there's a way to read the text and have it speak to us today that both honors the original intention uh, of the author and then the audience, but also can can uh, open up the space for the Holy Spirit to speak to us today. Um, you know, which I'm not I'm not sure about the consistency of when and how. Like I'm still <laughs> that part out, but I do I do feel like that's probably keep me somewhat grounded. You know, on being not being totally crazy. Yeah, no, and I, I think there's uh, some balance there. I mean, I, it's hard for me to go fully back to patristic model with the four senses and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. there is, there is, I, I am, um, I, I think the historical grammatical method is limited. If for no other reason, why would God let us get 1800 years of church history before somebody figured that out? Or yeah, even, exactly. Or even 1500 years if you think Luther was doing that. And I don't, I'm yeah. not sure he was quite doing the exact same thing that, you know, no. uh, modern refugees are trying to do. And, yeah. and the whole deal is like, I, I think when we came up with Trinitarian theology in 325 uh, with kind of that patristic model, of exegesis, I don't yeah. think we missed the mark on who God is or yeah, what salvation yeah. is about. So yeah. if, if it was good enough for them, I think it, it's probably, and in a lot of ways, this is why I resonate a little bit more strongly with Richard Hayes's hermeneutic than mm-hmm. N.T. Wright's, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're not wildly different, but both use narrative, but Hayes comes from a, you know, that whole reading backwards approach. I think yeah. um, Hayes exposits, yeah, yeah. Uh, assumes that we're not just historically grounding this and building our way forward. It's like, no, we we have received revelation of who God is. And so that it's through that lens that we understand the nature of this story. And I yeah. think that actually is, you know, I think Hans Borsman and others would say, you know, that's a more sacramental way of reading scripture than just a historically uh, you know, a, a, a poor way of saying this would be that it's built on a foundationalist epistemology and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't know that all of that is, but uh, the historic model, um, you can overstate those things. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, I think Hayes, uh, Hayes's model is a little bit more holistic. And in the sense of reading scripture as it's not just the human author, but really we're engaging the divine author. And so there is some sense of coherence between yeah. say Lamentations and Paul, even though they're two very distinct human authors. Yeah. I think it, it only seems, um, you know, reasonable to recognize the genre differences and also, you know, the way that God speaks through, but um, yeah, it's interesting though, because I, I do find it fascinating that, were Paul to go to a um, Baptist Bible college, <laughs> might fail their hermeneutic class. Yeah, yeah. In the same yeah. way that Jesus would probably fa- uh, fail a lot of the expository sermon uh, classes, you know, homiletic cor- courses out there because he doesn't do, you know, his his sermons aren't as strict exegetical expository sermons, you know. So yeah, it, it hit me because I always uh, even agreed with that. And so as I was teaching students, you know, you got to have one passage, let that be your focus. And then, and then it struck me. It's like, where have I ever seen Paul do that? Where does Paul just limit himself to one text? I I know. 
bring together the whole narrative and and he'll have like Second Corinthians three. He'll he'll have like the golden calf episode as his his lens, but then he's got the new covenant text and he's got these other things. And so it's it's much more holistic rather than just a single text. You know, that yeah. only what's interesting too, though, with that, um, <laughs> I can't take any credit for this, but there's a great. Well, I think it's a great book called Inspired Preaching by these two Baptist dudes from down in Texas. Actually, uh, I think they're at Criswell. Uh, okay. Uh, college, but it's uh, it's basically all the sermons in the bio in the New Testament uh, essentially. And when when I read it, it's you know your standard Baptist um, type of you know book and whatnot. But one thing that I thought was fascinating about it is that it, it's interesting that when we think about homiletics or preaching, we oftentimes in our circles we go to Jesus or we go to Paul. And and I think when I was going through that, uh, reading that book, it dawned on me that we actually should go to to Acts. Acts actually. Mm-hmm. Had, I mean, there's full on sermons and, you know, so I think it's, you know, really insufficient to, um, to like look at Galatians as a sermon because it's an epistle. It's actually, it's more like what you, you write a theology piece, you know, and that's mm-hmm. what Paul was doing. And, and Jesus, um, obviously is a good example too, but I mean, you have full on, um, I think of, 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 uh, Acts seven, you know, that w- right before he's stoned, he preaches this amazing sermon and it's a entire biblical theology, the history of Israel yeah. all in and then throw, you know, drops the mic and, in and it's killed. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. That. but, but I think that's, uh, that's also a fascinating thing about, about homiletics is that you see a lot of different, um, a lot of different styles, I guess maybe would be one way to put it or a lot of different, um, different ways of doing it. And, and so I, I, I think you're right. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to like go to one, one clear way to do it, you know, which is why I think I was fortunate enough to be, um, initially trained in homiletics in a Pentecostal environment. So it was kind of mm-hmm. like, you can do whatever you want, <laughs> whatever the Holy Spirit teaches you. So it was yeah. like expository, textual, topical, you know, and I, and I think I've been trying to, I haven't, I don't think this is unique, but I do think that it could be something to be said about it. Cause when I think about my, my, um, I don't know, like calling or vibe or whatever, or my, my passion, I'm really trying to be pastor theologian. I, I want to have like, mm-hmm. I don't want to do pastoral preaching, but I also want to be theological. And so it's a little bit different than just doing your typical expository sermon, because I think I'm using, I'm not using, but I'm basing it on a text. I, I did get that. <laughs> That's the expositoriness of me, but I'm wanting to, I want to flesh it out theologically and talk about mm-hmm. the implications of the theology that we're reading in that passage of scripture and the questions that are being raised, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I'm still trying to figure that out cause it's not like I've been preaching, you know, for 40 years. Um, but I definitely l- love the theological reflection aspect of, of the homiletic engagement. Yeah. I think that's important. It's, uh, I, you know, I, preach about once a month. So I, I'm definitely not refined or honed in that. And I, I lend, you know, I come out of that tradition where I do preach one text, you know, I mean, so that that's my primary, but I think when we make that the only mode, you know, I mean, it's like when you pick one atonement model is like, if this is not it, then everything else is wrong. You know, it's like, no, I think there's a great variety here. And so appreciating uh, God's work, through various means, you know, I think is helpful. And story. I mean, my thing now is just seeing the power of narrative story and not just in, um, in, you know, cause globally, like when you, when I've gone to other countries, it seems like the power of narrative is so obvious, you know, in, in 
storytelling cultures. But in, in a post-modernity, post-Christian, just in the world we live in, I mean, our social media, right? Uh, Instagram stories, Facebook stories, everything is about now trying to tell a story. Marketing is all about storing, you know, and there's something about, about doing that in a way that's able to um, spring off of a text to help people understand that text, but also mm-hmm. into the story of God. And that's, you know, that's your book, right? I mean, there's a, there's a central story that you're, you're doing. Yeah. I think that's a, you know, theology in context is basically what we're doing, you know, and con, you know, grounded and out of the Bible, but in the context of history, I mean, one of the things that we haven't really brought up here is just how historically situated we set theology. So we always give a biography of some theologian or someone, yeah. uh, you know, so could be more contemporary like William Seymour, you know, when we talk about the Holy Spirit or somebody like Augustine, you know, or Aquinas, some of the, I could, I had better, uh, you know, zoom in on all the uh, icons behind you, you know. <laughs> yeah. Hey, just really quick, the guy who, um, who drew all these, except for, the, let's see, this one right here, uh, Mary. Uh, all the other ones were written by this guy named John, um, and he is an artist, uh, and I'm going to have him on the podcast. But, yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. Like, I got Carl Bart over here. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Aquinas, Moses the Black is right there. And, yeah, all these different theologians. No, they're great. And I think that's the whole thing is, like, we – theology is a, a conversation of the church. So it's not just the contemporary church. Of course, it's the church over the past 2,000 years. And so just trying to give some flavor of that who are the people behind this, you know, so not just patristic folks, but um, Mother Teresa, you know, it's not a common one you would think about eschatology, but so much of like what I say about eschatology is it's way more about ethics in the New Testament. Yeah. It's the way you live rather than setting dates and who's the Antichrist and all that kind of stuff. And so just Mother- that chapter, and I, I was cracking up, I was actually on a uh, plane and I was rereading and I was cracking up about how you start with Mother Teresa. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's not a common one, but, uh, you know, I think it is people that are willing to sacrifice and and give up something here and now because of their hope for the yeah. future. They're the most eschatological people I know, you know, and so that, I, you, the, and I think that's really for anybody who doesn't have this get engaged in theology just for that, because I walked away um, from that, uh, from reading that chapter. And I, I was really um, impacted by it because I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between ethics and eschatology, because I was told you I'm supposed to write this paper for the Catholic evangelical dialogue about the relationship between ethics and eschatology. And I, and I think that I, um, I've been brainstorming how it seems like a lot of folks who are really into the eschatology world. And I'm going to pick on dispensationalism right now. I for, forgive me all you Dallas theological seminary students, but you know, classic dispensationalism, uh, the folks who probably weren't listening well, but what they got was don't go to college, don't worry about anything, everything's about to end, like back in the 70s, you know, and during the Jesus people revivals. Jesus is just about to come back, don't take care of the earth, it doesn't matter, you know, blah, blah, blah. And there was, there was, um, I guess there was ethics, but it was only in relation to evangelism, you know, like that's mm-hmm. the whole thing. But, but when I read your chapter, I, I was like, man, it really does open up a lot of other questions about the way we should live our lives now, because if we do have the hope for the new creation and, and God reconciling all things to himself and, and um, you know, ultimate goals of redemption, then it does really beckon us to do something differently and to live our lives in a specific way, not just about getting people to raise their hand and come forward at a you know church service to get saved. It's, it's a lot more than that. So get this book, folks. 
Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I think it feels to me like the book crescendos over time. Like once you see creation and then the work of Christ as the Messiah and the spirit who brings in the kingdom, like it all grows. And I think that eschatology chapter is where it seems to me in my mind where it kind of locks in and you'd like to see the big picture from creation, the new creation. Um, Great. And, and for any of our listeners or viewers, I'm going to have links in the description to all of Ben's books. Um, he has obviously his, uh, your dissertation was published and I know that's available with Erdman's this book. Um, you've, you've done other work too. What are you doing? Uh, what are you working on right now? What's the next yeah, so uh, God willing, we'll finish in the next uh, few months a book on justification and resurrection. And basically, uh, sometimes the what I'm critiquing, and well, there's various models, but the, the average one that people know is that justification is a status that happened in the past, and then sanctification is this transformation, and then glorification happens in the future. So past, present, future kind of model that when Paul talks about justification, it's not so much about a status or just forgiveness, but actually uh, when he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, that the righteous by faith will live. It's this hope, this promise that we are made alive in the process of justification. And so it's it's not that it's, uh, you know, you're earning your salvation, you're doing these things to be justified, but it's justification actually leads into the life of discipleship. And it's not just like your ticket that gives you your fire insurance to go to heaven someday. Yeah. And so really playing out how justification and life and Paul's letters um, plays out there. And so, um, you know, doing that and more kind of biblical studies uh, track there. Awesome. Yeah, great. And then uh, I know, so you're active on Twitter. Um, you're you're out there posting. Yeah. It's probably the best way to uh, bump up against me uh, actively. Yep. Yeah, because you're going to start a YouTube channel eventually. But I just got to keep <laughs> encouraging you. Uh, you also have website. Uh, what's what do you do on your website? Yeah, it, uh, it 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 languishes, but uh, Dunelm is the Latin word for Durham. You know, you're always looking for some uh, twist or angle, you know, and that's where Durham is where I studied, did my PhD. So random thoughts, you know, some patristic, some other things. Um, it, it, it languishes, though, for lack of attention, but uh, random things come up. You, you are going to maybe write more, maybe possibly yeah that's, that's my goal uh, now that i'm kind of back from sabbatical got a little bit extra uh juice in the batteries so yeah that's great that's my that was my one of my uh quote-unquote resolutions uh, for one i was like i want to get back to blogging because i haven't done it for about four and a half years on a consistent basis that's right well all the cool kids are podcasting so that means the retro stuff I'm, you know, it's like the my blogging is like the MySpace of, uh, you know. <laughs> I'm trying to do it all now. I'm going to bring it all back. Uh, but hey, one thing that I know that is a potential um, opportunity for people out there who are interested in studying theology, but are like, there's no way I can go to seminary. I'm not going to move to Houston. I'm I'm not even sure if I can understand things. For someone like that, I hear rumor that there's a way for them to be able to study with you, and and I'd love to maybe have you talk about that. What's that? What's that intent yeah. to look like? And there's a website link uh, right here for people to go to. Tell us about it. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, this uh, Zoom course uh, that we're doing. Um, 
So just to make the Bible and theology more accessible to people that are not in seminary. So as a first step there, and um, it's uh, the big ideas of scripture and the big, or sorry, the big story of scripture and the big ideas of theology. So in that sense, we're putting the scripture, the narrative of scripture in that one coherent whole, but then also showing how theology is an extension of that and built upon it. So mm. it's designed for people that want to take that next steep step. So that's the go deeper, right? Uh, but you don't want to get lost in some seminary class where, you know, they're throwing out hypostatic union and all these other terms that you don't have any clue what they're about or why they even matter, you know. So, of course, I'm teaching it. So this uh, engaging theology book is one of the core elements that we'll use there. So if you're intrigued and you want to hear me, you know, in person describe kind of the things there um, along with the book. You know, it's the hbu.edu and then HTS for Houston Theological Seminary. Go deeper. So awesome. Yeah. And again, there's links uh, for all the listening and viewing. There's links in the description so you can check that out, too. Well, Ben, it's uh, it's an honor and a privilege to spend time talking with you. Um, I know I'm going to have you on again if you would be willing to, because I always love our conversations and we uh, weren't able to tap into, I want to talk about the topic of your dissertation in a future episode, because your dissertation obviously has a lot of bearing on our current, um, well, discipleship, spirituality in general, and I think would really fit within the sacramental charismatic wheelhouse. So that'd be awesome to have you on, but, uh, good stuff. Is there anything you'd want to say to our, our, uh, I guess our listeners and viewers, uh, as you can take us home? Yeah, just uh, look forward to more sacramental charismatic stuff. I mean, I I don't know that I've not cornered the market on this uh, topic by any means. I'm more of somebody stumbling along uh, in that journey. And so just appreciate all your work that you're doing here and uh, your various interviews. And, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that you and Jeff talked about last semester or last year, whenever. Sorry, I talk in uh, academic semester (laughs) terms. But uh your last season, uh, you know, found just really uh, stirs the pot for me and helps me think a lot better about uh, what, you know, general ideas that haven't all the way formed myself. So, appreciate yeah, yeah. That. that's great. Well, we, we really appreciate your time. All right. Thanks a lot, everybody, for uh, listening. You can find me on social media. I'm hanging out on Twitter, too, at Luke Garrity. And then I also have my website, um, www.lukegarrity.com. If you go there, I'm starting to post everything on there. So that's a good place to go and check these out. But uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Woo!